We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 14 today, and I'm excited. That is a jam-packed chapter. Uh, The only problem is it's so jam-packed, I don't know that I can cover the whole thing in the allotted time. But we're going to give it our best effort to at least hit the important, well, it's all important. You know, the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's all profitable. And so I don't want to make it seem like some parts of Matthew 14 are more important than other parts. But there are some parts of Matthew 14 that the Holy Spirit spoke to me about this morning that I believe he wants to spend a little more time on. And so uh, we will do that. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are grateful to be here this morning. We are grateful for the freedom and the privilege to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we are grateful, Father, for your word. We are grateful for your Holy Spirit that takes that word and uses it to transform us to be more like Jesus. And so this morning, Father, we not just pray for open ears, we pray for open hearts, that your word would accomplish that which you send it forth to do. And we give you praise for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. We should be doing chapter 13 today. Um, However, I will be out of town next weekend. And so Tom was gracious and switched with me. So we'll have chapter 13 next week. Um, But I don't think it's going to hurt anything to switch those two chapters around. All right. Um, Matthew 14 begins with the story of two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. The first third of the chapter is about, mostly about King Herod and John the Baptist. The second two-thirds of it is about King Jesus, and that's where we will spend most of our time. The hope that the book of Matthew offers to, or holds out for Israel is the same hope that Isaiah held out for Israel. As Matthew, the book of Matthew repeatedly demonstrates, God comes back to Israel no matter what Israel does to reject him. He keeps sending his servants, and Israel kept harassing them, beating them, and sending them away. So God sent his own son in the flesh, and Israel kills him. And even then, God does not quit. He resurrects Jesus from the dead. He comes back from the grave passionate to save his people. This is the hope that sustains us, that sustains the faithful. So Matthew 14 opens with Herod Antipas, uh, thinking about the resurrection and reincarnation, the return of a servant of God, John the Baptist. He hears about Jesus, and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist returned from the dead after he ordered him killed. This upset Herod quite a bit. And so Jesus, distressed by John the Baptist's death, attempts to draw apart, but the crowds follow him. And after ministering to them late in the day, Jesus feeds that crowd with two fish and five loaves of bread. Then after drawing away, Jesus comes to his disciples' rescue on the stormy sea of Galilee. And then Matthew 14 ends with Jesus healing all who touch 
the hem of his garment. We're going to go back and cover this in more detail, but I wanted you to have an overview of what Matthew 14 entails or includes. So starting in chapter 14, verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch. I've always wondered what a Tetrarch was, so this gave me an opportunity to research it. Basically, Tetra means four, a fourth. And so a Tetrarch was a governor over a fourth of a province or a kingdom. So uh, Herod was the governor, Tetrarch, the governor over the Galilee region. And Pontius Pilate was the Tetrarch over the area around Jerusalem. So continuing, and that time Herod the Tetrarch, I'm on slide six, by the way. Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and, for these, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Going on in uh, slide eight. Because John had said to him, it is, un, it is not lawful for you to have her, although he wanted to put him to death, he f feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came, took away the body, and buried it, and went and told Jesus. So when Jesus hears of the death of John the Baptist, and by the way, there's a whole lot there we could have went into, but the Holy Spirit is having me skip over this morning. When Jesus hears of the death of John the Baptist, he is sad. John the Baptist was his cousin. And he goes to go to a, a lone place to deal with the process, to pray. But the crowd follows him. He goes in a boat in the fall and the crowd follows him on shore. Beginning in verse, or continuing in verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them. I like this word compassion here. It implies that Jesus was moved down to his very innermost being. It wasn't just like poor folks. They need us. They're a lost, they're lost sheep. They need, a, they need somebody to lead them. No, it wasn't that. It was, oh, they are so hungry. 
They are so needing. They are so empty. I can't leave them like this. His love for helping others outweighed his need for solitude. In verse 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus said to them, they they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. The operative word here is you. You give them something to eat. How am I supposed to feed 5,000 men plus wives plus children, 20,000 plus people? How are they supposed to do that? You know, Jesus provides the power through the Holy Spirit. But we have to do the doing. When we say, yes, Lord, we then receive power, knowledge, and wisdom to go and obey. But we still have to go and obey. Only we have to do it in faith. Sometimes God asks us to do some strange things. Blind men, go bathe in a dirty river and your eyesight will return. What sense is there to that? But what would have happened if they wouldn't have obeyed? Oftentimes it's desperate people that obey. But it's a shame it has to get to that point. You know, as disciples, it's not our problem. It wasn't the disciples' problem how Jesus was going to feed 20,000 plus people. That was Jesus' problem. The disciples' problem was to obey and do what Jesus said. And that's so often is how it is with us. We have a need. We want to do something for the Lord. He calls us. He tells us. And it doesn't make sense. His ways are not our ways. I remember Jim Maloney talking about a a young boy that was paralyzed and, and, and Jim Maloney was up on a statue, the base of a statue, preaching and, and talking. And God told him to pick the boy up. And he picks the boy up and God tells him, drop him. Now that takes some faith. Paralyzed boy, you're going to drop about six feet. Jim Maloney dropped him. He landed on his feet and he stayed standing. Obedience, even when it doesn't make sense. We must be obedient to Jesus no matter what the request. The bread itself came from Jesus himself. We as Christ's servants take the bread and give it to somebody else. So when we pray for somebody, when we counsel or or witness to somebody... It's not our power. I can't do anything outside of Jesus except mess up. It's his power. His power working in you. That's what it is. But we will never experience his power unless we obey. I want to feel the nudge in my heart to go pray for somebody 
maybe they are uh, maybe they have a broken arm. And the first thing Satan says is, what if they don't get healed? You're going to be a fool. Or I want to witness to somebody. And Satan says, what if they reject you? What if they don't want to hear your message? It's not my problem. It's not me. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit that works in hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that provides the power to heal, to touch, to change lives. It's up to me to obey and do what Christ is, or the Holy Spirit is prompting me to do. Christ through the Holy Spirit is prompting me to do. Verse 17, and they said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate till they were filled. That's how I like to eat until I'm filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. First thing I want you, the Holy Spirit wants you to notice is that what the disciples had to offer wasn't enough. How are five loaves and two fish going to feed 5,000 men, much less their families? But you see, that's how God is. He takes what little we have and he multiplies it. He loves to do that. Because that way there's no question to anybody that it was God that did it, not me. And that's good for me too. Because I couldn't do it. And God deserves the glory and the praise. Jesus is the bread of life. He fed three million people for a generation, 40 years in the wilderness. Three million people. This was minor to that. That was only about 20,000, roughly. In the Old Testament, manna is described twice. Once in Exodus chapter 16, with the full narrative surrounding it, and once again in Numbers 11, verses 1 through 9, as part of a separate narrative. In the description in Exodus, the book of Exodus, manna is described as being a fine flake-like thing, like frost on the ground. And the raw manna, we are told, tasted like wafers that had been made with honey. And as God provided manna in the wilderness, so he provides sustenance to these 5,000 men and their families. And so he will provide for you. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, 
<coughs> excuse me, for the wind was contrary. The Sea of Galilee sits in a unique place. It's in the middle of a desert. And the warm desert winds mix with the, <coughs> excuse me, with the cooling coastal air. And it makes some pretty violent storms. Sea of Galilee is known for its winds, its storms, and its shipwrecks. Now on the fourth watch, fourth watch is defined by the Romans as that time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. You know, there are a number of passages, surprise me, there are a number of passages in the Old Testament referring to God walking on water. Psalm 77, verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Job chapter 9, verse 8. He who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Psalm 107, verses 25 and then 28 and 29. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Continuing in verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. That word troubled in the Greek is the word terasso. And it means to strike one's soul or heart with fear and dread. Think, don't, 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 don't think about it. But the, 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 the most frightening thing you could think of that would be Tarasso. They were scared white, I would dare say. Although the scripture doesn't say that. So to strike one's spirit with fear and dread, to distress or afflict. They were afflicted, but Jesus came to save them. This obviously reminds us of the Exodus Jesus, just as God saved Israel by dividing the sea in front of them in the morning watch, which is equivalent to the Roman fourth watch, while the disciples struggled with the waves, Jesus was on a mountain alone, just as Moses went up to the mountain to pray alone during the Exodus. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, don't be afraid. What storms are raging in your life this morning? You know what Jesus is saying? Be of good cheer. Be happy. I am here. It's going to be okay. I remember back in 2000, I lost my job. For seven months, I had no source of income. Like many, we lived from paycheck to paycheck, and, and usually there wasn't enough paycheck at the end of the month to pay all the bills.
I had no idea how we would survive financially. I dare say, Terrasso had taken hold of my heart. But God was faithful. We never went without a roof over our head. We never missed a meal. And miracle of miracles, all the bills were paid. I can't explain it. I don't know where it came from, except to say it came from God. He knew my need. He had my back. He loves me and cares for me. I'm sorry I'm getting old and I don't remember the exact circumstances, but a few years later, I faced another financial crisis. And I do remember thinking, all right, God took care of me for seven months. This is no big deal. And then like in two days, the crisis was gone. And I was sad. Because I wasn't going to see how God was going to rescue me. But he already did, that's right. So in verse 28, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the, out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. You know, when Jesus gives us a command, he gives us the ability to fulfill that command. It can sometimes seem to be overwhelming. I remember when I retired, I said, okay, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I've got the rest of my life. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Oh, just don't send me away from CLC. So far, he's been gracious, and that's been the case. But I know that I know that I know that if he does choose to put me someplace else, that he will provide, he will bless, and he will take care of CLC. Not like it, CLC prospers just because of me. I don't get that. Don't take that. But I know God has it under control. When he gives you a command, he gives you the ability to do that. And we see from these scriptures that faith in Jesus makes supernatural things possible. The secret of success is to obey the Lord's voice and then keep our eyes on him, on his promises. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then they got into the boat, and the wind ceased. Scripture doesn't tell us this, but I can imagine Jesus standing on the water, Peter walking towards him, Jesus having a big smile, because Peter was was obedient, was faithful, was doing what he, Jesus told him he could do. And I just, it, Jesus had to be so proud of Peter at that moment. And then Peter looked at the waves, the turbulence in his life at that moment. And he became fearful. Terrazzo returned to his heart because he took his eyes off of Jesus. 
But even then, Jesus didn't leave him to drown. He scooped, reached out, scooped him up, buoyed him up on the water, took him to the boat. They entered the boat, and the winds ceased. Just like that, the storm was gone. Peter was doing great until he took his eyes off of Jesus and turned them on to the things of the world. Taking his eyes off of Jesus and turning them to the circumstances caused unbelief. It caused him to look at natural things instead of God's promise. Jesus' promise, come walk to me. Fear is not of God. It is the result of a lack of faith. And we are told in Romans that faith comes by the word of God, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 33, So then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Don't know for sure, but this region, Gennesaret, this is where the lady with the issue of the blood said to herself, if I can but just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And so, weak with blood loss, she struggles through the streets and through the crowds and touches the hem of that garment, and she's immediately healed. Perhaps it was that, the, the story that went out about that event, that caused these, I guess you call them Gennazarites, that caused them to say, just let us touch the hem of your garment. We know we'll be healed just like she was healed. Numbers fifteen thirty-eight. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue cord on the tassel of each corner. According to the prophecy in Micah 4.2, it says, But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The word for wings here in the Hebrew is the same word as for borders in numbers that we just read. It kind of says the hem of Jesus' garment are the wings of healing. So going back to the woman with the issue of blood, she knew that if this is the Messiah, then surely if she can get close enough to touch the hem or the border of his garment, she will receive healing. See, she knew this. I'm sure she knew the scriptures. 
all Jewish people, all Israelites, were raised and taught the scriptures from a very early age. She was embracing the promise that the Messiah had healing in his wings, and she looked upon Jesus and believed that he was who he claimed to be. And when she had touched the hem of his garment, it was the same as touching him. When her faith touched his grace, she was healed. Worship team, you can come. Oh, no, we're going to have communion. I'm sorry. Um, in, we're going to have communion in just a minute. But you remember Mark 7 when we read about the story of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter? Jesus tells her that he's not going to heal her daughter because healing is the children's bread. And she has a very wise reply, and her daughter gets healed anyhow. But I want to talk for just a minute on healing being the children's bread. Who are you? Who are you? Are you not a child of God? When you were born again, did you not become adopted into God's family? So healing is your bread. I don't know about you all, I eat bread too many times a day. I like bread. Healing is the children's bread. And we should not fast from it. Andrew Womack reminds us that she received based on Jesus, not what she deserved. She was Syrophoenician. She wasn't a Jew. She did not deserve <clears throat> under any of the law Jesus' mercy. But she didn't look at what she deserved or didn't deserve. She looked at Jesus and who he was. I want to remind you that the operative word is you. Scripture in a couple of places tells us that by Christ's stripes, we were healed. That's past tense. That means everything, the healing, it was already provided. You know, I feel a lot of times when I pray and say, Jesus, please heal. He's like, Wayne, I already did. The provision is there. So what's left for us to receive? It's the doing. You see, doing releases our faith. And when we release our faith, we receive. So Jesus has done his part. It's already provided. All we need to do is in faith, believe, and receive. And sometimes Jesus asks us to receive in different ways. Sometimes he puts mud on, my, on their eyes. Sometimes he tells them to go wash in a dirty river. Sometimes he tells them to take his hand and rise. Sometimes he tells them to take up their bed and go home. But we have to do so, whatever it is Jesus tells us to do, we have to do because the doing is what 
is the action of receiving what God's already provided for us. And I know I'm talking about healing this morning, but I want you to know it's not limited to healing. Jesus provided everything we need, everything we need, whether it's financial, physical, spiritual. He's already provided it for us. It's simply a matter of doing what God asks us to do to release our faith, to receive. Jesus provides the power, we provide the healing. Doing is how we release our faith. And it's not our problem how Jesus is going to meet our need. It's our part to position ourselves to receive by doing whatever it is God asks us to do. I emphasize this because I believe this morning, whatever your need is, Jesus is moved with compassion to the, to the very core of his being. He loves you so much. He doesn't want you to be in need, whatever the need is. He wants you to be empowered so that you can continue his work here on earth. But more so, he wants you to live a life of abundance. And I don't necessarily mean being rich beyond my belief or my means. I mean a life full of fruit because he loves you. And what a privilege it is for us in health and having enough finances to meet our needs and to help others in need. What a privilege it is to carry on the work of Christ here on earth. That's why we're called Christians, Christ-like, doing what Christ did. We're going to go to communion. And um, in so doing, and in so doing, I'm sorry, let me get the right thing up here. Sometimes uh, electronics aren't your best friend. We don't just believe that communion here is an act of obey, uh, an act of remembrance. It's not something we do to remember Christ. Goodness, Jesus lives in our hearts. He's, he's our reason for living. We remember him day in and day out. All the hours we're awake and some of the hours we're not awake. So it's not just an act of remembrance. Communion is an act of communing with God. It's an act of interacting with our Heavenly Father. And in that communion... We have access to all that Jesus died to give us. So as you take communion this morning, it's not just taking the bread and the wine. And it's not just communing with God our Father. It is receiving from God what we need in order to do the work of Christ here on earth. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And giving thanks for the bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What does that mean to proclaim the Lord's death? It means to believe that everything he died to provide for us. We proclaim that. Christianity is not a dead faith. Jesus Christ lives. And his words are yes and amen. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood, body and blood of the Lord Jesus. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Father God, we thank you for this bread. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for the Lord's body by which his stripes have healed us. May it be for us in some way the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also thank you for this cup, this cup that represents the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from every sin, that gives us newness of life. Hallelujah. May it be for us, Lord, in some way, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We practice open communion here. That means that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've asked him into your heart as your Lord and Savior and you are not holding any grudges against anybody, we welcome you to the Lord's table here.